now for something completely different. Welcome to Shout Out. Out of the closet and into your ears. Welcome to a special edition of Shout Out, where we look back at some of the fascinating interviews from people around the world, giving a voice to the minorities within the LGBTQIA community. Well, it always makes me feel quite humbled sometimes here on Shout Out when I interview people because there's such a breadth of talent in the LGBTQIA plus community. And our next guest is no exception, Elegance Bratton, who's uh, just released uh, Peer Kids, which is, uh, if you haven't seen it yet, you've got a chance in the UK uh, this coming weekend. Elegance, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really you're, happy to be here. Yeah, you're very welcome. Now, you started filming the, the film um, quite a while ago, didn't you? Was it 10 years or more you started uh, the filming? Oh, my God. It was 11 years ago. Now. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Do, was that so you could get build a history to your characters? Yeah, I wanted to... Um, you know, very early in the filming, I was challenged by one of the main participants. Her name is Crystal Labasia. And she told me that in order to tell her story, I had to be her friend. And she felt like the way I was making the movie, like I was under some sort of like deadline pressure to have her sum herself up. And it didn't make her feel comfortable. It made her feel like, you know, she was something to be studied and not a real person. So once she said that to me, like, you know, you've got to be my friend to tell my story. You've got to be on my side. I realized that I had to approach the film this way with everyone. That And friendship takes time. It takes time to understand how people are the way they are, why they do the things they do. So, yeah, I wanted to initially wanted that time. And I also did this film while I was an undergrad in college. So I was, you know, spending my first part of the week in classes at Columbia University and then the second part of my week, I was on the pier with these these young people, just kind of living however they lived and, and having the camera be there with them. And um, it just meant it would take a, lo- a long time. And that was like the first five or six years. You know, I raised all this money on Kickstarter and I thought, you know, I would meet, the industry would meet me halfway and be like, oh, wow, this guy raised all this money and... He's got all these, you know, social media followers and people are really interested in this film. And, you know, let's just give him the rest he needs to finish and we'll have a huge release and everything will be great. And that didn't happen. It actually had to go to Masters College at NYU Grad Film to actually learn how to edit this movie myself because no one was really willing to help me. Um, And then I had to also, you know, so now I have a whole nother degree I'm earning So when it all came down to it, you know, it was a mixture between wanting to have the time to understand these characters, but also the realities of making a black queer, you know, documentary in in the climate of, you know, pre-pose, pre-my house, um, you know, in a world within which, you know, I, I walked into so many really prominent offices and was told that, like, nobody wants to see a movie about poor black trans women. Like they need to sing, they need to dance, they need to vogue, they need to be in drag, they need to, we need something, you know? And um, I'm really, really happy 
proud that, you know, it, it took a while, but if anything, this film is, if there's anything I want people to learn from the story of this film is that, you know, vision requires perseverance. And I'm really, really grateful for the people around me who kept pushing me to finish this film. Well, um, it was worth it because I watched the the documentary last night, Elegance, and um, it brought me to tears quite a few times, I must tell you. And it is something that, that people really need to go and watch. It, it is a hard watch in places, um, mm. but it is worth the watch. And just, it just shows the struggle of, of, of trans uh, people of colour and what they have Thank to you. go through. And um, you've captured it so, so well. This whole village is another world inside a world. Homeless youth come to this area because this is what we know as safe zone. This is where we socialize, we make some mangoes. Out of summer, I'm definitely going to be in housing. I can feel it. The police make it seem like they're going to stop prostitution. They're homeless, so they, you know, they turn into this lifestyle. Officer, you want to search me? They just don't like it. Ma, all I'm asking you to do is just see me. That's it. I don't know her as Krista. This is my nephew. What's wrong with taking this lifestyle and setting it outside your mother's door? I'm tired of doing that. What put our hands up? Um, oh, thank you so one, much. one of the things I took from it, Elegance, is, is uh, some of the things that I also take um, from within the UK and that religion, um, whether that's Christianity or Islam, um, mm -hmm. has a huge impact in prejudice against LGBTQIA community. Um, and that is actually shown in your documentary with the aunt and the mum. Uh, yes. Whereas they see religion is rather than than love, um, and it seems in in their world the religion must come first, uh, rather right. than the love of what they perceived as their right. son, rather than what was in reality their daughter. Right, right, yeah. Religion is you know Christianity in particular in the United States for for us is I mean it's an unending culture war. It, it doesn't seem to be a, a, a stopping point to this. And um, unfortunately, I, I always kind of refer to it as a situation of like criminal civic neglect. Like, you know, black folks in America have spent our entire history within this country dealing with white supremacy and oppression and, and, and white supremacy meaning a legal systemic economic apparatus that is meant to delimit and predetermine negative life outcomes for black people and really non-white people as a whole. So when you're up against a, a formidable legal system and you're up against a formidable economic, you know, capitalist system that is just kind of, you know, spitting people out and making them obsolete, where else do you turn but to God? Because you know, people have, you know, the people who are in power have, you know, expressed an, a total disinterest in empowering you. So you have to go to a higher power, you have to go above them. 
And I think in the process of going to God to solve our, the issues of white supremacy, very often people are, their guard is down, they're more vulnerable, and they don't even realize that the religion that they're consuming as a way to find power within themselves and find faith within themselves is also something that has been concocted by a system, an oppressive system to keep them in their place. And unfortunately, you know, black and brown and, you know, LGBT youth as a whole are kind of left in the undertow. You know, there are 2 million homeless kids in America. And of that 2 million, 40 to 60% of them are LGBTQ youth. And of them, 40 to 60% of them are of color. So, you know, this issue of, of, of one of the reasons I made Peer Kids is to help working class people all over the world do a better job of understanding their queer kids because I feel like I feel like the modern LGBTQ rights movement has left working class people of color behind and has created an argument that requires one to be almost white and middle class to be able to have the kind of economic and systemic space to tolerate difference. We have to understand too we're in a system where heterosexuality pays. Having kids, getting married, tax breaks, um, you know, all sorts of these things are kind of geared towards the heterosexual in reproduction. And as a result, gay people are kind of left out in the woods, you know, so there's, there's a lot of things informing this religious pressure beyond just people's uh, faith relationships with God, you know, there are societal systemic uh, benefits to being straight that I think are also in conversation with the religious pressure to exclude and oppress queer people. I don't think Blacks are any more predetermined to be homophobic or transphobic than anyone else. I do think that um, Black folks, and particularly people of color, you know, like when we, when we, I don't know how the gay marriage movement really situated itself in the UK, but in the United States, you know, the images that were propagated were of, you know, white men, very high earning, very high educated, you know, it, I always call it the Jane Goodall approach, you know, like, yes. so like us, yeah, yeah, you know, like yeah. you're, we're just like straight people, we get married, we have babies, and we're white, just like, and <laughs> yep. you know what I'm saying? And, and, in a, and in the meantime, what that does is, it ignores the work that needs to be done to actually teach black households how to understand their queer kids and that's why i made peer kids so i don't believe that black people are any more likely to be homophobic than whites but i do believe that the increased kind of consequence of homophobia is just another result of the criminal civic neglect that black people have experienced in you know the united states but in the western hemisphere overall now you finished um peer kid i see you've got um a new film that you're uh, yes. will be releasing soon Hellfighter, the james reese europe uh, story about the african-american jazz pioneer uh, tell me a bit about that yeah i um i was fortunate enough that i was reached out to by 555 films and Rainshine films uh uh, both of which are located in the UK. And they had this project about James Reese Europe, who uh, basically was the, 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 the forefront of integrating the United States military during World War I um, as a leader of the 369th Regimental Band that brought jazz to France. So this man not only was a part of the first 
group of soldiers to fight in a uniform internationally for the United States, he also was the first person to make black music global by bringing jazz to France. And I think, you know, I, I always say this anecdote around the importance of James Stewart. You know, I grew up my whole life, you know, be, hearing that if I wanted to make it, I had to either be a basketball player or a singer. James Reese Europe is one of the people who laid down of that black entertainment class that would make such an anecdote uh, kind of ubiquitous within my, my childhood. Now, you were in the army yourself. How, how did that go for you? Were you out then? I was, you know, my mother always say, you know, you can't hide in plain sight. So it was uh, don't ask, don't tell military <laughs> that yeah. I signed up for in 2005. And I very much went out of my way not to be out in that environment, because if I were to have been out, legally speaking, they could have kicked me out. And I, and I joined the military, you know, after being homeless for 10 years. So I didn't really, I, I didn't have anywhere else to go. So I couldn't afford that. That being said, I'm pretty sure everyone knew that I was gay. And um, so it was a complicated experience. My other, I have another film I'm working on with A24, a game changer called The Inspection, a fiction film that I wrote and directed about a homeless queer kid who joins the Marine Corps and ends up falling in love with his drill instructor and having to hide it. Um, so yeah, like I think everyone, it, it was complicated because on one end, I got the camaraderie of the military. I, you know, as a queer person, a homeless queer person, chosen family had been my way of surviving. But when you're making chosen family with other homeless people, everybody's in a situation of neglect and want. So it's very hard for us to lift each other up. Very often we're treading water. Joining the Marine Corps was my first time with a chosen family that actually you know, I got a college education out of it. I got three meals in a, a day and a, a warm place to lay my head at night. And I got skill sets and I got, I discovered filmmaking. So on that end, I'm really grateful for my military experience. However, you know, not being able to be out, I didn't have a, a, a lover at that time when I was in the military. It had really detrimental effects on my psycho my psychological well-being and I have a lot of PTSD from the bullying that I had to deal with because people knew that I was gay, but they also knew that I couldn't defend myself against homophobic attacks. And I got picked on quite a bit. Um, so it's a mixed bag. I definitely deal with a lot of like, you know, psychological trauma from the time that I went in, but I'm also grateful for the life-changing family that it gave me. How do you feel about your life now, Elegance? Are you, are you happy um, and stable yeah. of your future? You seem that your talent is extremely uh, good um, with your filmmaking and that. And it it's seems to be going in a very, very positive direction. So do you feel that within your life and the people around yeah. you? I'm so happy and so fulfilled. I'm married to the love of my life. We just purchased our first house, um, and I did this, you know, making movies um, and TV shows. So, uh, you know, I, I always joke around that my 13-year-old self would be really, 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 really happy with where my adult self ended up at. Mm. Um, uh, that being said, I do feel, you know, so blessed to be in the position that I'm in. And I, Peer Kids was, Peer Kids came out of a desire to 
find like I guess if there's any message I want to give to LGBTQ people and especially the youth listening especially youth who are going through things like I've been through it's like your life experience is your wealth I spent a lot of my adult life being ashamed of myself for my sexuality being ashamed of myself for being homeless and when I got to Columbia University in my 30s I looked around and I saw all these like 17 and 18 year olds for whom a place like Columbia, like Ivy League education, was just the next step in their lives. It was not a huge aspirational goal. And more importantly, I'd spent my life up to that point in a money obsession, right? How do I get money to survive? You know, how do I have enough money to eat, have enough money to live somewhere for the night, da 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 da. And then I got to Columbia and I met people for whom money was not an issue, they had capital. You know, these are the children of the, 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 what do you call it? The rulers of the world, the ruling class of the world. And they had capital and that capital gave them privilege and gave them security and confidence in college. And I tried to go to college at least a dozen times prior to this. And I always dropped out because I'd meet these kids who had this privilege and I was like, I don't belong here. And I realized in that moment that my life history was my capital where I come from, the fact, and what I've overcome is my capital. And that's what I would say to any, you know, LGBTQ person who's yearning for a certain type of happiness and fulfillment from their living their authentic lives and their authentic truths. Understand that you have nothing to be ashamed of for being who you are. And that everything that the world tells you makes you weak is actually what makes you strong. It's actually what makes you indispensable. And we need you to tell your story. We need you to find your confidence in your journey. Because once you do, you'll be an example to someone else. And if we are, if we all become this positive example for one another, we'll all lift each other up, no matter where we are in the world. Fantastic words, elegance. Um, unfortunately, we've run right out of time, but it's been brilliant chatting to you. And. Um, yeah, people are people are going to watch your film and listen to this interview, and you are going to have an effect on a lot of people. Oh my God! Thank you so much. Thank you for your kind words and for making space for my film and for me. I I can't tell you how many times I've had imaginary interviews with British journalists before. So to have one in real life makes me feel <laughs> very validated. <laughs> Well, we, we do go out on um, 12 stations and we will tag you when it goes out, Elegance. And uh, please keep in touch. Um, love to know what's going to be going on in your future. And uh, hopefully you'll come back on very soon. Um, I would and love tell to. us about another successful story, um, as I'm sure Peer Kids will be. Oh, thank you so much. This has really been great. A dream come true. Have a wonderful day. And you, Elegance. Thank you very much. Cheers.
more information about Shoutout Radio, visit us online at shoutoutradio.lgbt. Shoutout. LGBT radio for you. The Shoutout Podcast. Some of the following interview comes across as quite shocking. There are some um, heartwarming moments, though, and it just goes to show that there's a lot of strength out there. It's very hot where I am. Luckily, there's a breeze. I think we're sat in about 31 degrees. Humidity is, is quite high, so it can be uncomfortable. The country, Barbados, and um, I've met up with Shem. Uh, Shem, what do you do for a living? I'm actually a professional hairstylist here in Barbados. Did you, have you, are you out on the island, or do you feel, because of the, the prejudices within the island, that you have to sort of stay hidden? Not... I wouldn't say that per se. I would say that I enjoy myself. I don't care what people think about me. So I just go and enjoy myself. If someone's try to bash me or whatever, I just ignore it. Have you, have you um, been party to homophobia? Yes, it's a lot here in Barbados because we see Barbados as a religious country, so it's not accepted in Barbados. It's not legal at all. Same sex marriage or being gay is not right here in Barbados. No, it's not. Okay. So what about um, the rest of the, the, the L and the B and the T? Is that still not acceptable? Trans, lesbian, bisexual? Well, I would say we have uh, like two or three trans people here. One... Would you say there was probably more, but just hidden? Yes, there's probably more, but hidden, yes. But I found that now... Saints is not accepted here. I found that most of my friends, everybody has seek asylum to move to Canada. So Canada is seen as a safe place. A safe place. Is it easy country to get into because of the persecution? Yes, the positive persecution. Yes. Is that what you mentioned to to be able to move over? Have you thought about moving? Well, a couple times. Yes, I've been told about. But since I have my salon here, I it's hard to just go and start all over again. So I try my I try my best to ignore it and just pull through that takes some strength yes um your customers uh, they're obviously uh, um accepting of you because they keep coming back to you so how do they treat you how are they with you they're very nice actually very good very loving people but there's some of them they have some husbands which they don't agree with it so they if Do you find that it's the men, the, it's the, men, the yes. bigger problem? Then? And I find it's the men of the older generation that doesn't accept it at all. Okay. That's probably the same, actually, most of the world over in the UK, that the, the demographic of that is probably just the same. Yes. Um, but there is obviously a lot more tolerance in the UK now, as in there's same-sex marriage Correct. in most of Europe. Are, are, are you with somebody? No, I'm, I'm actually single right now. Okay. Would you feel comfortable showing affection in Barbados? To I don't mind, but as I said, I don't mind showing affection to my partner. If But I find now if you do have a partner, the, the other partner doesn't want to show it because we know how Barbados could get. But for me, it's not a problem. Okay. You, you're quite a strong character, aren't you, Sha? Yes, I do have a strong character. Yes, I do agree with that. Yes, I do have a strong character. I really don't care what people think. There's also some... And not everybody's like me, don't care what people think. They have some young gay people that were here and their parents put them out. They beat them, they cut them up with sharp like knives or whatever we call here. But you, you guys might call it machete, but we call it a collins. And they're very abusive here. So 
sometimes if you see a group of men on the block here sees a gay man walking, they will take up a rock and destroy you. Wow. Yeah. So as Do you feel scared then when you walk in around? Well, I will tell you this. I don't trouble anybody. I'm very peaceful. But if you come for me, I can defend myself. That sounds a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have, you, have you actually, do you know people that have actually been um, subject to that type yes, of abuse? Yes, a lot. I, I lose about five or six people that I knew that were all targeted because they were gay and they either one got shot in the hand, one got nearly the back, the whole shoulder sliced off. So they actually use that because once you have the police report, as I said, you can go to Canada. And once you have the police report, you can seek asylum. You have to have, like, a police report or something, a witness or something stating that it's unfit for you to live here. So they give up their rights maybe for, like, 12 or 15 years, and they just go there, and they, the uh, Canadian government give them some, give them a grant, which allows them to give them a place to stay, send a school if they haven't finished school, and give them a monthly income so they get on their feet. Yeah. Oh, so the Canada seems the place, doesn't it? Because they're actually taking people from Chechnya yeah. as well. And now yeah. Azerbaijan has kicked off with uh, anyone gay who's seen yeah. as being arrested or, or tortured. Um, how did you find growing up and like in family life when you were younger with your mum and dad? Well, my mum is who told me, Sham, I know you're gay, though. But with my dad, my dad, it took a while for him to get accustomed, but now we're good. He's fine. He wasn't abusive or nothing that he just didn't know how to maybe deal with it, I would say. But he would, he would say, well, Shem, if this is what you are, I still love you as my son, but please keep your eye low because I don't want anybody to harm you or do anything to you. I guess that was their so biggest I, fear, wasn't it, that yes. you'd be hurt? Yes, but I really, be honest... I didn't have a bad childhood with my parents or me coming out gay. They were more supportive than anything else. It's a me or funny, it was my grandparents now that wasn't outside of it. So are your grandparents still alive? or? Yes, I have my two grandmothers from both sides are alive. And one of my granddads from my mom's side is alive, yes. And they don't know? They know, no. And, okay. Yeah, they know. But, you know, it took a while for them to upset it and start about getting the relation to speak with me yeah and how about school was that difficult well, school for me i i met school with all boys so it was it wasn't a problem to me i had some bullying yes but ain't nothing that i can handle so school was okay you coped yeah, with that okay. yeah, yeah. Um, are there any societies or groups on the island where where people of lgbt community can actually meet up well we do have parties like we have a party for or crop over, which is our um, carnival here in Barbados. We have one for Easter. We have one for Halloween. We have one for Christmas as well. All the seasons we have here, we have one. But it's more like a private something. Not everybody knows about it. It's a message you will send out and say, this is where the party is. But not like it's open for the general public. It will have to be around the same circle that we will know. Well, this is a party coming up. Yeah, so everybody it's done very carefully send a, a private message on Facebook or something. But it's nothing to open the public because we're still afraid that, you know what, someone that isn't gay would find ready parties and just maybe kill or shoot all of us. So, yeah. yeah. Um, you, we were talking about um, the transgender 
community on Barbados. Uh-huh. You actually know trans people? I know about three of them. Yeah. Um, uh, how do they cope? Well, two of them are like, are like older generations. So they have one that was in a lot in the public eye. And the, I think Barbados has to respect her because she can defend herself. If anyone comes for her, she used to work in a jewelry store called Little Sweet, so we refer to her as Didi. And she's a strong personality as well, so she could defend herself. She don't care what anybody thinks or anything like that. I guess the island needs people like you um, and the stronger ones to help others yes, come up I, on the step. I, I will say this. Um, I'm strong, yes, but sometimes when we are attacked the police are are not even give us satisfaction of how we want it here so they're homophobic as well the police as well very very homophobic they don't care about you're like nothing to them really if you get in somebody troubles you they they don't care they take down the report and that's it they don't go and warn the person or tell the person something have you been in trouble with the police well I will say not me personally in trouble with police but Someone came a time and was troubling me, uh, like trying to attack me all the time because I'm being gay, and they made a complaint. They really didn't get any satisfaction. But I told them next time he comes around me, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, and that's it. Do you know any um, people who've actually gone to Canada? Have your friends gone to Canada? I, I will tell you, no, but nearly about 40 people have gone to Canada. That, um, that many? A lot of them. Do you still keep in touch? Yeah, we still keep in touch. I go to Canada sometimes as well for vacation. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's a good set of them that are there. A lot. And they're still going. They're still going. And I found I find it's a younger generation to like like around 18, 19. They just go. And I find it, sometimes I find it, I, I think about going more than once, but I say, if my dad dies, how am I going to get back? Because you can't come back right away. If you come back, you give up. And it's hard to say that uh, a family member died and you can't be here for the, for the funeral or the wait or whatever. It's hard. So once you've gone to Canada and they give you citizenship, do you have to revoke your Bajan citizenship or do, can you retain that? I really, I think so and I'm not too sure. I don't know if that's the real thing. But I you know from the time you give them, like, you got, it's about 12 or 8 years it takes to get your citizenship up there. You can't leave between that transition. Maybe after you get your your Canada passport or whatever, then you could come and visit. What about the um, lesbian community? Do you actually keep in touch with other groups within the LGBT? We're all, we all one group, the lesbians, the gays. We all party together. Yeah, yeah we're not like there's a, a different section for gay women. We all come together. Ah, that's, that sounds good. Yes. Yeah. So those parties you have, it's the it encompasses the whole the rainbow. Whole the male and female LGBT community, yeah. yes. Yeah. Do you keep in touch internationally with other Caribbean islands like Jamaica or even Europe come to that? Um, not really. I have some friends in Trinidad that are gay. They, they do the same thing here. They keep it... Keep it... It's all kept quiet. All kept quiet and they keep it separate parties, like... You only know the party if you get an invitation saying it's a party. 
going on. What about the younger generation coming up through? Because in, in Europe um, and in the States as well, the younger generation, like the teens and that, seem a lot more accepting of LGBT plus community. Um, are you finding that on the islands that the younger ones are beginning to sort of be a little bit more open-minded, especially with the internet as pervasive as it is now? Mm, to me, not really. To me here, because if you have coming up, in, no matter if there's internet and you have a mom and dad or grandparents saying that's wrong, that's not right, the kids are going to come up with that in their head, build up here and anything. But in states, it's different. They, they I think they're everybody's equal in states or the UK, but here or Canada. But here, if your home, your parents keep saying you better don't grow no gay people are like that. I find that. You know, it's going to still be instilling them and they're just going to come up just hating gay people the same way in Barbados. Does religion take a, a large part of society? Yes. It keeps control? Yes, religion keeps a lot, a lot of control here about the gay community here, yes. Shem, tell me about the, uh, the politics of the island and the pressures from the, the UK on another Commonwealth country about the LGBT community. Yeah, I remember the Queen asking the government here to, as we're a Commonwealth country, we still have a good relationship with the Queen. She asked us to legalize same-sex marriage here, and the government kicked up a big fuss about it. The Christians' society here, the religion society, and Christians kicked up a big fuss about it, and they didn't pass it. But I find it very hard for the opposition leader, uh, Mia Motley, the, on the BLP, the Barbados Liberal Party, she is a lesbian, and... Is she openly gay? She's openly gay. She doesn't care, but they'd rather not give a woman maybe that is a lesbian that would do a really good job of ruling this country to get the current government in, out, and give her a chance and let her spread her wings and bring back Barbara to what it used to be. They're just afraid that because she's a lesbian that she's going to legalize same-sex marriage. And I find they give her a very, very hard time. Yeah. Is, it, does she tend to um, be popular uh, on the island, or is there... Uh... She's, she's loved by the BLP members. She's a very good person. She's a very good, she's a very good lawyer. She's a very good... Econ- oh, I can't remember the name. Is it economic? Right, economic is right. And she is really good at it. And she, I think she would give get back Barbara to the way it used to be but as I said she's mean gay people would just not vote mm. they'd rather vote for the DLP which is just mashing up the tourist side of Barbados taxing us everywhere and making downgrading Barbados to the same level as Venezuela and I think they should give her a chance it does seem very expensive on the island. It is very. The cost of living is very, very high because this government, to be honest, does not know what they're doing. Shem, thank you so much for chatting to me. No thank problem. you. Thank you. For more information about Shoutout Radio, visit us online at shoutoutradio.lgbt. Shoutout. LGBT Radio for you. This is Shoutout News. 
Left-wing weekly paper Socialist Worker reports that upwards of 300 people have rallied in South London after two gay couples were attacked in six days in the area. The paper says the fourth Queer Night Pride was organised to show solidarity with those attacked and bring local LGBT plus people together in unity. The march started at Clapham Common Station and marched past the Two Brewers nightclub where the first homophobic attack took place and it finished at Arch Clapham Bar. The march organiser, Dan Glass, says he was so pleased with the turnout. We started these marches after my friend was attacked, and every night someone I knew had been, he told Socialist Worker. It was amazing to be together. It's so important. Dan says that the rise in hate and continued attacks on LGBT plus people have come directly from the Conservative government. People are emboldened by their hate, he said. It legitimises these attacks. But when we come out, we're not victims. We have collective strength and we're not afraid. As protesters marched, people in local bars applauded and cheered. Marchers chanted, we're here, we're queer and we will not live in fear. Whose streets? Our streets. Attitude magazine adds that also in attendance was the human rights campaigner Peter Tatchell, who tweeted live from the event, when our rights are under attack, what do we do? Stand up and fight back. Tributes have been paid to the gay broadcaster Jamie Crick, who was passed on to the realm of our LGBTQIA plus ancestors at the age of 57 following a short illness. Mr Crick had presented his final slot on the national commercial station Jazz FM only days ago. He began his illustrious radio career at County Sound, a now defunct local commercial station in Surrey in 1988, and five years later began a 20-year association with the then-new National Commercial Service, Classic FM. Mr Crick also worked over the years for Scala Radio and the musicals network Encore Radio. However, his most notable achievement was in helping create one of the earliest full-time LGBT plus commercial stations, Gaydar Radio, in 2001. An offshoot of the gay dating site Gaydar, the station initially ran from just one computer and mixer in a back office, but it grew to offer a wide range of daily programming. Mr Crick was programme director and hosted an afternoon show on the station. Gaydar Radio eventually closed, but it handed its licences on to Gaydio, which continues to transmit across London on digital DAB services. This is part of Jamie Crick's legacy. Among those paying tribute to Mr Crick was the gay presenter Jason Rosam, who hosts a programme on BBC local radio networks from the BBC Radio London studio. And a radio enthusiast called Imogen the Duranarak sent love to his partner Tim and two family and colleagues, noting, I regularly listen to Jamie and radio is so intimate you almost feel like friends. Rest in power. And finally, the gay newspaper Washington Blade reports that the conference Men Having Babies is back in New York this autumn. For gay men, becoming fathers requires a journey. Men Having Babies is a non-profit organisation with the mission to help gay men who wish to have biological children with education, financial assistance and through advocacy work. On the last weekend of September, MHB is bringing its internationally known conference back to New York for the 19th year. The MHB conference has been the starting point for thousands of gay dads. It could be yours too if you're interested. The weekend-long conference will cover the medical, legal, social and financial aspects of surrogacy and egg donation, including detailed guidance on budgeting and insurance. 
Delegates will come out of the conference with better understandings of the process, its suitability to parenting vision and values, and how to prepare for it, and the resources, community, and professionals who can help one through it. If you're interested in finding out more and building LGBTQAA families of tomorrow, then pop along to their website, which we have linked to on our newsfeed. Well, if you want to stay in touch with what's happening in the ever-changing LGBTQIA plus worlds, then be sure to be connected with gay, trans and rainbow media, including community newspapers, magazines and podcasts. The Pride Aid website links to many of them. And do keep abreast of things at our website. We're at shoutoutradio.lgbt. For Shoutout News, this has been Terry Starr. Shout out news, national and international LGBT news for you. This segment is sponsored by Talk to the Rainbow Council. Visit talktotherainbow.co.uk. Shout out LGBT radio for you. The controversial best-selling book, The Bride of Amman, first hit the bookshelves in the Middle East three years ago. And that very book is now available to read in the English language. And its author, Fadi Zagmut, along with his book's translator, Ruth Amadzai Kemp, are both with me here today. Fadi and Ruth, uh, welcome to you both. Thank you. Ruth, I'll come to you in just a moment, but can I ask you first, uh, Fadi, can you give us a brief idea of what your book is about? Yes, I always say that the book is about the social obsession in in marriage and uh, how marriage is a very important social institution in Jordan. But the characters in the book, they they can't get married because for uh, for many reasons. Because, uh, for instance, uh, marriage institution in Jordan is still a religious marriage. So we don't have civil marriage. For instance, one of the characters is a Christian uh, woman who falls in love with a Muslim guy and they can't get married. There's also a gay character in the book, and we don't have same-sex marriage, so he gets, uh, also because of social pressure, he gets married to a woman, and his wife also tells the story from, from her own point of view. There's also another character of a woman who gets sexually abused by her father, and she loses her virginity, and virginity is still a prerequisite for uh, marriage in Jordan. Uh, for women, they have to be virgin. And also the, the the last character is a woman who reaches her 30 years old and she talks about social pressure on her to get married before reaching that age. The thing about all these characters is the um, they're all uh, friends, they all know each other, don't they? Uh, yes, uh, actually Layla, the main character, well they, are, they all have their own section, they, they all uh, they all are main characters, but Layla is the one who gets married to the to the gay man and also her older sister is Salma and her other friends from university Hayat and Renan. Regarding what these women actually go through and the way you've written the book, is it at all autobiographical in nature? I mean have you actually met women who have gone through these experiences or indeed have you experienced any of them yourself? Yeah, actually I only have only a very the small part of the book that is that is out of my imagination, most of the fit is real. I constructed the storylines based on people that I know or based on events that happened to me or people that I know. Ruth, can I ask you, how did you actually come across the book? 
Um, I was uh, lucky enough to have a holiday in Jordan and was in a bookshop in Amman when I saw this book on the shelf. I thought that's a great souvenir of my holiday. Um, I read it very quickly. It's a really gripping book and got in touch with Fadi via Twitter quite soon after that to see if I could translate some of it for um, a magazine which was having its annual queer issue. And so I thought the, the bit about them, the gay oh, characters. So you were be. just translating an excerpt to start Yeah, with. so I translated an excerpt first. Oh, right. And um, that's what was he- helped with finding a publisher for the English edition. Oh, right. Okay. Did you, Fadi? Did you have any trouble finding a publisher for the Arabic edition? Because it strikes me as the stuff you're writing about is really quite controversial and taboo. Mm-hmm. Arus Aman was my first book. It's the name in the Arabic, Arus Aman. I didn't know how to get it published, and I sent it to uh, to one Jordanian publisher and two Lebanese publishers because I thought in Lebanon they are they have more freedom, a little more open-minded there, aren't they? Yes. And again, they have a mixture of um, religions there as well, a, a significant Christian population as well as an the, Arabic publication, the, uh, Muslim. But, sorry. That's true, but then after one week, I called uh, the Jordanian publisher and he said, yes, I read it and I, I want to publish it for you. So I bet you were <laughs> over the moon when you heard that. <laughs> one of the impressions, Ruth, that I got was that um, it's written very much in the first person and um, it's a little bit bright reading a diary, I guess, but not just an individual's diary. It's a, a diary of uh, five different people. But to be honest, just one thing I loved about it was the, the simplicity of the language and the accessibility of it. I think it does read like genuine young people speaking yeah, or blogging. I think blogging is a, a theme in the book and the, sort of the freedom of expression through one of the characters' blogs comes up and thought it's worth recreating that in the English as well, it's as if someone's writing a diary. When you first read the book, did you think, oh, I'd really like to translate this? Yes, because I love the plot and I love the language. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a fascinating account. I mean, mm. one of the things um, I wanted to um, ask you, uh, Fadi, is what sort of uh, feedback have you had from women and gay men or gay women who've read the book and... Um, particularly from those who've had connect, who have connections with the geographical region. Yes, I have uh, very strong reactions to the book, and uh, many women just called me and told me that I expressed their feelings. They thanked me for that. I also got some letters from women who were married to gay men. They, they found themselves in the story. And also I got uh, many messages from gay men, some of them who who's still in denial. So these these are men who have felt that they have basically had to, uh, under pressure from their families, have had to get married at some point in time, who identify as being gay, but um, marry a woman, for example. Yes, but also some, some of them just, uh, because they were subjected to sexual abuse in their childhood, and they thought that's what made, made them gay, so they, they reject right. their sexuality. A common misconception, yeah. obviously. And I guess it works the other way around as well. There, there must be you know lesbian women out there who are forced or have marriages arranged for them, you know, so it must be an equal nightmare for them as well. That, that's true, and it happens all the time in Jordan, and I know some, some of them who got married and then... Uh, they get divorced after getting children, but uh, after they, they were independent and ha- have the courage to do that. One, one thing I noticed when reading the book is you, you tend to steer quite clear of the um, the role of religion itself and in terms of um, the way uh, social injustice applies to women. And you, t- you tend more to sort of um, apportion blame to the family and the idea that uh, there's a 
patriarchal influence and that um, uh, women must be subservient to men. Do you, do you, do, did you do that consciously? Yes, that's true. I didn't want to, to go in direct conflict with, with religion. And second thing, because I don't think, I think that religion is, uh, for instance, Islam is very wide and very a, a big religion that can be interpreted in many ways. I witness myself like our societies are going back in conservatism. They, they weren't like this 20 years ago. So things are go- going back. What struck me is that conservatism applies to Christian families just as much as it does to a Muslim family. Yes, that's true. Like you can see also the character of Rana. She's a Christian. She comes from a Christian family, and also because she loses her virginity, she she escapes to Sweden because her family would kill her the same way like like a Muslim woman would be like it depends on how conservative the family is if I could we could just sort of broaden the conversation a little bit around the the rest of the Middle East the book obviously focuses on Jordan itself are we seeing any advances for women in the region at all uh, I would say like in the past 30 years there has been much work uh, done to, to promote gender equality but uh, Nothing has been done on promoting sexual rights and body rights because it's a culturally sensitive topic. All of the women groups and women NGOs work for to changing the laws regarding women education, women empowerment, and these things did advance in the past. But in terms of body rights and sexual freedoms, no, there's no problem. I was thinking to talk about maybe the fact that now women are, in, say in Saudi, the simple right to drive a car is empowering. But again, their personal body rights, that doesn't really help them, does it? That's true. But also, like, Arab women are conditioned to, to, to think that way, like to, to respect the culture and not to, to fight for their sexual freedoms and body rights. So you, you find only few women who are ready to talk about this and to fight for it. Let, let me ask you about um, the veil, or and and I use that as a as a kind of broad description of uh, the way women have to cover up their bodies, their hair, maybe even their face. And Ruth, I'd, I'd like to ask you this as well because you visit the Middle East a lot. Do you feel vulnerable if you are not covering your face, or what sort of tradition do you observe when you are in the Middle East itself? Personally, um, no, I've, I've not felt that pressure at all. I have always put on the veil if I've been in a religious site or in the vicinity of a site I thought was sensitive. And, and also, I suppose, in villages where I thought that the atmosphere might be more conservative and I wouldn't want to offend people, but I tended to feel fairly confident knowing that I am a Western woman, actually. Right, so, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm not going to submit to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting, actually, because one of the things that you you brought up, Fadi, in the, in the book was that uh, one of the women was thinking about choosing to wear the veil, not necessarily out of religious conviction, but because she was being harassed mm. sexually mm-hmm. by her boss. And I just wanted to sort of um, get out there the idea that actually, you know what, it's not necessarily a religious thing, but this is something that um, men f- almost force women to do because otherwise they, you know, they see themselves as maybe an object of sexual desire or they're asking to be treated in a certain way. Yeah. Is, is that a message you really wanted to get across? Yeah, that, that's true. And uh, the veil ha- has been growing in the society also in the past 20, 30 years. Most of the women were not wearing veils before that. Well, Fadi and I have been talking about these issues a lot this week and I thought it was interesting the way, Fadi, you said that, um, yes, in the last 20, 30 years, cultures across the Middle East have been getting more conservative 
particularly where there are secular governments people are unhappy about, religious conservatism has grown. But in very recent times, since the rise of Daesh or ISIL or ISIS, actually there's been a reaction against that and people are taking the veils off again. Right. So say we're not associated with that. It's actually worked the other so way it around. It depends then. where people are and how safe they feel. Do you see the internet, particularly social media, as an important tool in order to affect any kind of change for both, um, both Arab women and the LGBT community as a whole? Yes, for, uh, for instance, for, for me, when I started to blog in 2006, I wanted to address these issues that uh, I didn't used to see in traditional media. So the internet opened the space for us to, to tackle these issues because if you used to go to any uh, newspaper, traditional newspaper, they wouldn't uh, allow you to publish. The social media opened the space for public debate, so now you can see stories, people uh, debating with or against uh, all the topics. And I guess also social media has, as it has in the West, has made it a lot easier for gay men and women to actually uh, introduce themselves to each other, meet, have relationships. That's true. They're much more connected now online. But of course, also it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because it's been used in, uh, certainly in Egypt, I know that, uh, for means of entrapment, that the security services have used it as a means to track down gay men and or women, actually, and uh, use it to um, take them into custody or imprison them or punish them. Like any other medium, it, it can be used for conservative voices and for liberal voices. And you can, can always say, like, religious leaders or conservative voices that are strong using the, these medium uh, much efficiently than the liberal voice and the liberal leaders. Well, let me finish by asking um, both of you, if there was a single change in the Arab world uh, regarding social injustice for women, something something that you'd like to see change, what would be the first thing that you would like to see happen? For me, I think it's probably the same as what needed to happen in Britain, which was financial security or freedom for women. Because what I really see is that women are trapped in their families until they get married and then they're trapped within the family under their husband. Yeah, yeah. They're allowed to go out to work in yeah. Jordan, but they have to give the money to the yeah. uh, the, the man of the family. I, I would like to see like more tolerance in the Arab society, to, uh, openness uh, to the other, like to respect uh, each uh, uh, individual choices and the body rights and sexual freedoms for everyone. And finally, for those who'd like to take advantage and who can now read The Bride of Amman in English, where is it available to buy? Um, a good online store near you. Also, other venues for um, ebooks. It's on Kindle, but other oh, ebook right. platforms. So, the, platforms too. the usual places. And Fadi, I believe you do have a blog page. Where, yeah. where, where will we find that? Yes, it's thearabobserver.wordpress.com. So, you are the Arab Observer. Yes, you I are am. him. <laughs> well, Fadi and Ruth, thank you so much for speaking with me today, and uh, I wish you all the best with the book. Thank you. Thank you so much.
We hope you've enjoyed this very special edition of Shoutout Radio. For more information about Shoutout Radio, visit us online at shoutoutradio.lgbt. Shoutout. LGBT Radio for you. Shout out. LGBT radio for you.